you'll learn very quickly is that we are not competitive. Actually, we're the most not competitive family you've ever met. If you think you know a not competitive family, we will not competitive them more. That's how not competitive we are. <laughs> we love games. We love playing games. We love competing. And uh, when, when I got married, uh, I married into this game. I think it's still, it's a game. But if you were to come to our home or the home of the family hosting this game, you'd say this is not an, a game. This is a collision of personalities. This isn't a cultural event. This is terrifying. <laughs> this is amazing. This game, appropriately, is called Wahoo. Now, uh, I had never heard of this game before. I had never seen this game before. But it did not take long to understand the influence and the opportunity present for everybody in the house when the Wahoo boards came out. It's a combination of uh, trouble, where you push that little button in the middle of the board, uh, sorry, when you kick people out. <laughs> not, that's not fun. That's not a good Christian thing to do. Um, it's a combination, it's like bunko. You move, there's dice, you move tables. Um, and it's just fun. And it's this game that brings our family together. People drive from all over the valley to come play this game. Once, Christina and I drove 12 hours straight from California to Mesa in time for first roll. <laughs> it is this amazing game. And the thing that's like the, the spectacle of it all isn't the game game necessarily. It's the generational history of this game. See, it started with um, Arlene and her family. Arlene is aged. Well, I'll put it this way. The first time I met Arlene, sitting across from her as my partner at Wahoo, said, hi, Arlene, my name's Evan. Nice to meet you. Um, do you come to these often? She said, yeah. This is probably my last one. How come, Arlene? Well, look at me. I'm probably going to die soon. And she was <laughs> like, okay. I, she looks old, but not necessarily that old. But Arlene is, she's uh, the great, she's a great grandmother. She's a grandmother. She's a mother. She's kind of the matriarch of this game. She was the one who built boards for every family so that when we came together, we could have six boards to play on. It started with Arlene. But then there's also Gary. Gary is uh, my dad's age. He's an uncle. And Gary is uh, the one who most recently, he, he's been playing this game his entire life. Arlene taught Gary and the rest of the boys but Gary, most recently, emailed us copies of a five-page rule book. 
with every contingency and possibility and circumstance that could ever manifest itself in this game of Wahoo. So we all knew how to play this game and what to do if, when. Gary knows this game. But then there's also Mark, Christina's younger brother. He's about 10 years younger than us. And he, not so long ago, growing up around this game and these events, he took it upon himself to make a trophy for the winner of Wahoo tournaments. I think we're now, and not only is it just like this novelty trophy, <laughs> it has nameplates in the year and the season that you won. Like I said, we're not very competitive. And then most recently at our most recent Wahoo tournament, Briley, my daughter, our seven-year-old, is starting to sit on laps and roll dice and ask questions. What does this mean? Well, you should go there. Actually, no, you shouldn't go there. Briley is starting to catch the bug of this generational game. So now it's up to us. Uh, to pass on this generational game to the next generation. And one of the things that I love about Wahoo tournaments is that we never have to worry about babysitters. All the kids are there. Uh, they cause a ruckus. We've lost multiple marbles on this game and had to use golf tees and all sorts of random things because kids have curious hands. And that's okay. It's a, it's a generational event, this game of Wahoo. And like I said, this, this Wahoo game, it's not just a game. It has become part of our family's history. It holds part of our family's future because it encapsulates much of the best part of our family's identity. It's this generational game. Now, the church, for the church, for us, we have a similar thing that we do. This thing that we gather around and pass on, we've learned from other people, we teach other people, we experience other people, experience things from other people, we learn strategy, we trial and error together. We lose things, we find things, we kind of piece this together. And that's called discipleship. Discipleship is the word the church uses for learning, practicing, and teaching faith. And discipleship doesn't happen on accident. Just like with any key aspect of our own family's identities, for the church, generational faith is experienced personally through intergenerational intentionality. This last week, as I've been thinking about how, what word does God have for me and what word does God have for us, he took me to a text. It's in the back part of your Bible in a book called 1 Timothy. That's, uh, that's not true. It's 2 Timothy. I'll pay closer attention to my notes the rest of the sermon. 2 Timothy. 
So I'm going to be jumping into this text, this verse, a lot this morning. So if you have your Bible with you, if you have your phone with a Bible on it, or if you have your Bible memorized, just in case, um, please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. And this is something we say every week uh, with um, our middle school and high school students because we don't want to assume that everybody knows everything. Uh, if this is your first time with us or you're new to the Bible and none of the words I've just been saying make sense to you, Second uh, Timothy is um, a section of the Bible. It's a, it's a letter that was written. It's titled um, at the top of the pages. Uh, when I say chapter one, that just means you look for the big number <laughs> on the page in the book of... 2 Timothy, in verses 3 through 7, the verses are the little numbers. So, this is what 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7 says. This is, uh, real quick, a little context of what we're talking about here. 2 Timothy is a letter that was written by a man named Paul to a younger man named Timothy. They're not together. Uh, Paul is in prison, and he is writing to Timothy um, an encouragement, an exhortation, and wisdom. And this is the very beginning of his letter to Timothy. So Paul's writing to Timothy saying, I'm grateful to God whom I serve with good conscience as my ancestors did. I constantly remember you in prayers day and night. When I remember your tears, I long to see you so that I can be filled with happiness. I am reminded of your authentic faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Louis. Louise, Lois. Got it. The Greek names are easy. It's the not Greek ones that get you. I'm reminded of your authentic faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. I am sure that this faith is also inside you. Because of this, I am reminding you to revive God's gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands. God did not give us a spirit that is timid, but one that is powerful, loving, and self-controlled. The first thing that I see in this text, this introduction to the letter, is I see that Paul is talking about a generational faith. Faith is a thing that is entrusted to people generationally. We see this in Lois and Eunice. Paul is reminding Timothy Remember the faith that you have right now? It didn't begin with you. It began with your grandmother and your mother. Remember the faith that you had, that they had. But we also see Paul acknowledges right here in these, these short few verses, his own generational faith. In verse 3, he says, um, I am grateful to God whom I serve with a good conscience as my ancestors did. 
he's acknowledging the way that he loves and serves the Lord is in step with the ways that his ancestors that came before him did as well. So Paul is continuing in step with a generational type faith. And we see that this isn't just Paul talking, um, remembering a few key people, but actually that this generational faith is something that's been spoken of for hundreds and hundreds of years prior to this letter. In Psalm 145, the prayer book, the song book of God's people, Psalm 145 says, one generation will praise God's name to the next. From generation to generation is how the Old Testament speaks of faith in God's promises. This generational faith is an assumed context, an assume, assumed environment for how faith is experienced and passed on. And then uh, we see God himself it is always a good place to look. Is this present in the person of God or is this something that we're constructing for ourselves? God himself in Exodus 3 Verse 6, when he's speaking to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses is out of his mind, which y'all would be too. <laughs> A bush is on fire and talking to you. And as assurance to Moses, God identifies himself generationally. He says, Moses, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is saying, I am the God of the generations. I am the same one that you've heard about, that you've experienced. And so you can rest assured in who I am. See, we can lose this idea, this truth of God and our faith being generational in a world and in a context that's hyper-focused on personal experiences. We want to stay out of people's way when it comes to discipleship and faith formation and experiencing God because we want people to experience God on their own terms and their own ways without my bias or influence. And while our faith is personal, our faith is first generational. We forget the generational nature of this faith. But it is our faith that we come and gather to explore and cultivate, practice, and enact. God chooses to speak of himself generationally in a personal manner. Speaking of individuals such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when we encounter this kind of generational faith, we experience it personally because Jesus meets us personally. It is this generational faith that comes to you, that comes to me. We experience this generational faith personally. And we see this in this text. 
If we don't experience a generational faith personally, all it is is a family heirloom that gets uh, passed on from person to person in a dusty old box. And soon uh, some family member gets it and says, how long before I can sell this in my next garage sale? If our generational faith isn't experienced personally, it's just a dusty heirloom. And we can see that Timothy has indeed experienced his faith personally. We go back to verse 5 in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, where Paul says, I am reminded of your authentic faith. And this faith is in you. If you haven't experienced something Personally, your expression of it will be fabricated, rote, plastic. But Paul has spent time with Timothy and can say, this is an authentic faith. This is truly yours, and it is in you. This faith that Timothy has experienced generationally, he has experienced personally. And that has had implications in his life. In 1 Timothy, we learn a lot about where Timothy is now in his faith journey. See, Timothy followed and traveled with Paul. Paul, who was a church planter, a pastor, a missionary, all throughout the Middle East after Christ ascended to heaven. And Timothy watched Paul do this. And he was with Paul when Paul planted and started this church in a city called Ephesus. And in 1 Timothy, we learn that Paul has left Ephesus, but Timothy has stayed. And that whole letter in 1 Timothy is Paul encouraging Timothy in how to lead this church. So now this manifestation of a generational faith, which he has experienced personally, has put him in a position where he is now leading and discipling and pastoring a church. There's something interesting here, though. In 1 Timothy 4, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Not only is he leading, but he has to take ownership of his own faith. We inherit this thing generationally, but we also have to carry our faith personally. Paul reminds Timothy, train yourself in faith. Continue to lean into the gifts that you've been given. Do not neglect good teaching. At some point, we have to figure out how we're going to roll our own dice and get our own marbles around the board. We experience a generational faith personally. And we see that in Timothy here. Timothy didn't just go through the motions, but was rooted in a personal faith that he tended to. And Timothy was not unprepared for such a task because over the course of his life, he'd experienced, experienced intentional, intentionality from intergenerational relationships for our kids, for our own, and for our church's preparation, we must begin to live and act and disciple 
intergenerationally. Generational faith is experienced personally through intergenerational intentionality. I want to just take a moment here and uh, kind of define a term that I've been using for the last 15 minutes, intergenerational. Intergenerational is different than multi-generational. Multi-generational, as, as I understand it, is when we are in a room or a place where there's multiple generations present. And it is encouraging, that is good, it is exposure, but it is passive connection. Intergenerational is when our, the multi, our multiple generations are interacting. It is an active participation, an active engagement with people of different generations. So there are a lot of churches that are multi-generational, which is good and right. But what we see here, just from Timothy's own story, is that it wasn't just that there was grandma and mom and Paul and elders around. It was that they were interacting with each other. There was intentionality. We see this with Lois and Eunice and their authentic faith. The grandmother and mother, parents, we have, you have a tremendous job of raising humans. Uh, as far as I know, there is no perfect rule manual per situation that you're going to encounter in how to do that. But the thing that's interesting here that Paul says was the best thing that Eunice and Lois did for Timothy was hold on authentic faith. For your kids, cultivate an authentic faith. Is it an accessory or is it centrality in our life? Authentic faith. It will be seen by our kids. You know, anybody that's ever had kids or been around kids knows that they see more than you want them to see from your life. And so the best thing with that knowledge we can do is cultivate an authentic faith in our life. We also see the elders had a role intentionally in Timothy's discipleship. There was the laying on of hands, the giving of gifts, Spiritually, in 1 Timothy, it says the elders prophesied over him. This means that the elders of the church were in relational proximity with a young man, enough that they had knowledge and investment and care in this young man's life. They spoke into his future. We see Paul, all throughout these two letters, speak of Timothy in familial ways. It's interesting also that Paul talks about Lois and Eunice, but doesn't mention a father. I don't know what that means, if there was no father present or the father just didn't have faith. But what Paul did is he stepped in. He became a father figure. He invested in Timothy in the ways a father would to shape that faith and mold that faith. 
And so Timothy had other generations outside of his immediate family who filled in the gaps for his biological family. Who in here does not desire other people to fill in our parenting gaps for us? I want my children to stand with me while we worship. I want my children to see my faith, but I do not want to be the only example of faith for my daughters. Because I am not infallible. And Paul recognized this. Paul saw this young man and stepped in and started filling the gaps. But then there's Timothy, intergenerational intentionality. He was a young man leading a church. This church had people uh, who were married, who were widowed, who were young, who were old, who were rich, and who were poor. And Timothy was in a position of leading all of them. And it's interesting because we understand that this did not always go over well because Paul in 1 Timothy 4, 12 says, do not let them look down upon you because you are young, but live in his example. Why would Paul have to say that unless Timothy was in a position of leading people of a different age than him? And his age was an issue. See, there's intergenerational intentionality here. In all of these things, biblical discipleship assumes intergenerational intentionality as one of the natural characteristics of the church for the sake of a personal and generational faith. If you were here a couple weeks ago, you heard Doug uh, talk about church is uh, we are a family, not a business. And uh, today we're talking about discipleship is a family matter. And I love uh, what, when I was talking with Doug, he, he was talking about uh, <coughs> the church is more like a Thanksgiving dinner where we all pitch in to help put this meal together. And it got me thinking about my Thanksgivings as a kid at my Aunt Dolly's house. And you could get there four days early and there's still 10 tons of food <laughs> somehow. But also you could get there uh, two minutes before it started and you were gonna get a towel on your shoulder or a chair in your hand or a to-do list to get things help. Uh, whether you're a family or friends of family, there was always a chair at the table and work to be done. And the table, the table is the thing that always uh, is most prominent in my memory because it wasn't just a table. It was actually six tables. There was a regular nice dining table with the nice chairs that kids, uh, for some reason, I don't know why we could ever sit at that table. But right up, pushed up against the end of that table, was a card table. And at the end of that table was the outdoor patio table. And there was folding chairs, there was lawn chairs, there was neighbor's chairs. And it'd be, the line of family began in the dining room and ended in the middle of the living room. 
there was always space and a seat for you at the table. I don't ever remember, this is just my experience, I don't ever remember being sent to a different room to sit at a kid's table. Am I tempted to do that now as an adult? Absolutely. Kids, you'll eat tomorrow. I just need time. (laughs) But see, it was at that table where I can still see my grandpa who was suffering from the effects of progressing Alzheimer's, who could not keep up with the conversation or the people in the room, but when it came time to pray, he was outside of himself. He mumbled and prayed a prayer with such great fervor and faithfulness that it silenced everybody at the table. I remember at this table seeing my aunts and uncles interact and share stories and poke fun of and uncomfortably remind each other of different stories from their past, ask questions about their future, laugh, cry. I saw my aunts and uncles interacting with each other, my cousins and I. This is where we learn how to steal things because there's goodies in the middle of the table that we could not eat until we had to eat all the on our plate. And together at the table, we learned how to sneak and steal these goodies. Then I remember always seeing somebody that I didn't know because there was someone who wasn't a part of our immediate family or extended family, it was a friend. It was a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a new wife or new husband. And that was at that table where there was a space and a seat for us. I learned what it meant to be a part of this family. I learned the generational narrative. I experienced it personally because there was intergenerational intentionality in how we set it up. Jesus came to this earth, to this place, to add more tables and add more chairs to this feast of among a family that he is creating and that he is called church. It is a new family combined of your story, my story, their story. And as the Holy Spirit draws us together, He weaves these stories into one. So for all who have given their hearts, mind, and strength to Christ in faith, believing that he is the Savior sent by God to live, die, and rise again from the grave for the forgiveness and freedom of our sins, we we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit who has been at work in the history of humanity, since Abraham, since Isaac, since Jacob, since the chaos of an unformed creation. And you are part of this family, this new family who possesses a generational faith. And all that is required of you, required of us, required of me, is that we work to experience it personally 
as we intentionally place ourselves in places where faith can happen intergenerationally. And I want to say this. This is not the youth pastor coming up and saying, and now who wants to sign up for children's ministry? This is not saying, someone think of our children. What I am saying is someone, let us think about the faith that we have inherited and experienced generationally. Who are you learning from that's older than you? Who are you walking with that is you would call your peer? And who are you learning from that's younger than you? Are you learning from someone that's younger than you? Who are you teaching that's older than you? Who are you teaching that is walking alongside you? And who are you teaching that is younger than you? Because this is how generational faith is cultivated, experienced through intergenerational personality. This is not a new program. This is not a new paradigm. This is how, this is the business of our family. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are creative and strategic and faithful so that we can inherit a faith that we do not have to invent with each new generation, but a faith that can build and be experienced and be contextualized uniquely. One that still looks like and smells like and feels like the faith of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but carries the names, the characteristics, and the potential of our ancestors, of me, and the generations to come. Move in us so that we may know how we can continue a generational faith so that, is it, so, that is it, so that is experienced personally through intergenerational intentionality. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.